I'm Sarah Elizabeth Smith, and this is the Theosophia Podcast. So I'm here today with my good friend and colleague, Chantel Hinton. Just recently in June, June 1st, she was named the Assistant Chaplain and Assistant Director of Religious Life at Vanderbilt University. Chantal, I'm going to read this paragraph real quick um, about you and your life. But you are a native of Conway, Arkansas. You recently graduated with me in May 2017 with a Master's of Divinity from Vanderbilt Divinity School, where you were awarded the Kelly Miller Smith Institute for Black Church Studies Certificate, the Luke Act Prize, the Liston O. Mills Award, and the Florence Conwell Prize. Good Lord, woman. You also attended Vanderbilt University for undergrad and received uh, your BS in electrical engineering. And then you did a master's of science uh, in electrical engineering at Colorado State. I didn't realize you're in Colorado. Um, You know, that's where I did my first master's. No, I did not know that. Well, at at Northern Colorado, but right down the road. Yeah. So you, you did a concentration in controls and robotics and then you're also a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority. I know that's important to you. And the National Society of Black Engineers. Um, your previous life, you worked as a process control engineer. And you were a Bible teacher for various organizations. And this is, I think, the coolest thing about you is that you are an ordained mem- minister in the Christian church. Disciples of Christ. Yep. Okay. And uh, it's, this bio I found says you serve as the worship coordinator at New Covenant Christian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. That's so awesome. I'm just, I am so honored and proud to know you and call you friend. Thank you, friend. Yeah. But I just wanted to start, Chantel, with talking about how we know each other. And obviously, like I said, we, we graduated together at Vandy. But we didn't really get to know each other well until I, like our second year, right? That's right. Yeah, we both got selected to um, be a part of this Arcus Grant journey together. And I wanted you to talk about what that is. I talked a little bit about my episode where I talked about my path, but I would love to hear your perspective on the Arcus Grant and and why you wanted to do it and kind of how it informed your theology. Yeah. So, you know, interestingly enough, Sarah, I don't know if you know that the first time Trudy approached me, which is our, uh, our field ed supervisor, the first time she approached me about doing the Arcus uh, program, I said, no. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I really... I had started working through my theologies um, before I got to the divinity school concerning um, same gender loving folks, but I wasn't ready yet to embark on that journey. And so when she asked me to do it the first time, I told her no. And so then Trudy and Vicky approached me again and they're like, look, you're already at the church. Is there any way that you would reconsider doing this? And by that time, I had really come to this place where I, I just said, God, you know what? for you to do what you want to do in me, through me, with me. Um, And I wasn't scared anymore. I think before I was scared to kind of approach 
that space, um, that conversation, because I was raised very conservatively and very evangelically. And everything that I was ever taught was, um, if you love someone who's the same gender, you're going to hell. Like that's legitimately what I was taught. And so knowing that the Arcus grant was seeking to bring this conversation into various spaces, um, in my context, it would have been in my church. It, it, first, but then it became so exciting because I got to meet the dopest people. I I mean, that's how we, you and I got to know each other, but then I got to meet so many people at my church who were either in same gender loving relationships or just identified as queer and like being in relationship with those folks completely changed my life and helping to give the church tools and language to be able to talk about what it means to be welcome and affirming probably was one of the most transformative experiences of my life. So yeah, like it came, it went from me saying no to me saying, okay, God, if this is what you want, I'll do it. And it really changed my life. Mm, That's so awesome. I'll never forget, you know, we met, what was it like once a month we'd have social, like kind of like a little social, we'd, we'd drink wine together and eat some snacks and just kind of talk and, complain or cry or you know whatever yeah yes it was real it was real but our mentors were so so wonderful to help guide us through all that because I was scared too I didn't want to do that stuff oh really well I didn't want to be a um a minister like I didn't want to do ministry yeah I didn't want to do church ministry. So I was resistant to the Arcus grant too, because I was like, Oh, Dr. Armour, I don't know. Like I haven't been a part of the church since I was a kid. Like I'm just, Oh, I don't know if the church is ready for me. I don't know if I I'm ready for the church. So I was very resistant. I never wanted to, to be a minister or priest, but you know, she, she made me go check out St. Anne's before I, committed and I was like oh okay like I could I could do church like this I think think the Episcopal Church now what tell me a little bit about though the because the church you worked at is the one um, you got ordained in correct that's correct can you say a little bit about the denomination because I don't know a lot about I've about your tradition theologically maybe just a little bit and why why you chose that denomination? Mm-hmm. So, Disciples of Christ is um, it's a pretty historic tradition. But I think the thing that sticks out the most for me, and why I'm a part of this denomination, is that there's a little bit of autonomy in theological interpretation. Mm. Um, you know, the most important thing that we hold dear is that we're going to have communion every Sunday. Which I love Eucharist. I mm. love that ritual. It's so sacred to me. But other than that, um, I mean, I'm not saying we don't have a lot of rituals that we do. Yes, we do. But um, we believe that everyone has a seat at the table as it relates to their theological interpretation. So we have some people in our church right now who they're not Trinitarian. They don't really rely on Holy Spirit for anything. I mean, that's fine. You can still share space with us. Then there are other people who are extremely Trinitarian, and that's fine. And so there's just this variety of ways in which we all come to the table, uh, Christ table for communion and share space, even though we have different beliefs, we are on different ends of the spectrums with our theology. And it's, it's awesome. It's great. It's, it was, it was what I needed for this season of life that I've been in because I, 
I came from the Baptist tradition. Mm. Um, you know, it, I still, you know, I, I kind of jokingly call myself Baptist disciple because I have, <laughs> I still have some Baptist leanings. There are some things that really, you know, I am Trinitarian. That's one thing that I'll probably always be. Um, Baptist church is a little bit more dogmatic than disciples. Um, and I needed that freedom to kind of roam and question and be and become and grow. And disciples gives you a lot of space for that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm currently um, helping a Disciples of Christ church plant here in Oklahoma City do their pub theology meetings. So that's dope. Yeah, yeah. One of my good friends from high school uh, is the music director, and we've been working together. Simplicity Church, Oklahoma City. Little little plug for them, but that's what's up. But you know, so many of my good friends are Disciples of Christ. Um, again, I don't know a lot about it theologically because I haven't sat down and like. Um, really poured into it, but everyone I know seems really nice. So Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm a fan. I'm a fan just out of the people I know that are a part of that tradition. Yeah. So, okay. Not to like beat this over the head, but so you grew up Baptist. So when, when did you try out DOC? So, um, when I moved back to Nashville for, for VDS, um, Let's see. I I joined a Baptist church and it was it was nice. It was good. It was everything that I was used to. But I think that was also part of the problem. And so maybe probably like. I think it was about a year after I had come moved here and come back for school that I started going to uh, New Covenant Christian Church, which is the Disciples of Christ Church, Um, one because of the the things they were doing in the community. Um, They were uh, all about justice, social justice. And I needed a little bit more of that. And then also because they have a pastor who is a black woman. And I also needed to see that embodied leadership because, you know, to be frank, um, at my old church, my Baptist church, my pastor, you know, when it came time for me to answer my call, I was talking to him about it. And um, he he walked through the Bible with me on why women are not called and why they need, must remain silent in the church. And it was very damaging. So when I decided to go to divinity school and trust God and, and do what I felt I was being asked to do, it was like I, I knew that I needed to see an example of what I was going to become. So New Covenant was just like that perfect lab in and join and, and grow and be loved on. So, yeah. Yeah, that's huge. Um, I talked about that was really one of the biggest reasons I didn't join the Catholic church when I was studying and went to Notre Dame. Um, just how, how much um, I couldn't be a part of an institution that didn't allow women equal access to really all the sacraments. I think it's a, a, a question of sacraments too. Um, Holy orders is a very important uh, part of uh, the Holy sacraments. If you're in that line of the, the faith tradition, um, which, you know, the Episcopal church, we still have the sacraments. Um, but you know, just not being involved in the full communion and community of the church. I think, um, I'm, I'm the exact same with you. Like I need female leaders uh, when I can see myself. I think that's huge. And is your, is your church predominantly black, black folks that go there? Yeah, it's predominantly black, but I can say that like we've got some of the dopest white people that go to our <laughs> church. I'm not even gonna lie. Like I was 
I was just texting with one of them just a second ago before we got on here at um, some elders. There's a couple um, at my church. Um, they are amazing and they have just loved on me and they, they're woke and they're humble and they're able to say, uh, you know, for my white counterparts. And I mean, they're just, they just, <laughs> they get it. Uh, so yeah, we have, we have quite a few white folks who come and, and join in and uh, enrich the conversation, but yes, it's predominantly black. Mm-hmm. Um, goodness. So, so amazing. Let's, can we talk about ordination for a minute? Um, yeah. How did you experience your call? Mm. This is so crazy. Um, so last night I was just on a panel discussion at a Watson Grove Missionary Baptist Church answering these same questions for um, a gathering of their ministers and people who are discerning their call. And it was like, when I tell you it was full circle, Sarah, because it was like in a Baptist space, been back to a Baptist space and be able to be received or acknowledged as um, a reverend. And so it was like, it was crazy to be, be there and sharing my story. So it's interesting that you're asking me the same question now. Um, so how I experienced my call, um, honestly, was really, really early. I just didn't know it. Um, I professed Christ at the age of five. Mm. And for that, I can remember always having dreams um, and vivid, vivid visions and things or knew that that wasn't like a normal, I thought everybody had that, like everybody dreamt and everybody had these visions and stuff. But now looking back on it, I know that God was, was moving within me very early. Um, At my ordination, which was last year, my grandmother got up whom I absolutely adore her. I owe so much of my life to her. She got up and and we asked her just to say words. And she was like, Ella's um, always been an aggressive little girl. And and the church started laughing so loud. <laughs> I was like, Grandma, how are you going to slay me like that in front of everybody? But, um, you know, I really had to like reel it in and think through what she was saying. Like she was speaking pretty prophetically over me. I have always been extremely ag- um, aggressive, extremely outspoken, um, extremely... Um, bothered when people are picked on. Um, my mom would used to tell me like I would come home and cry and ask, when I asked her like why certain people didn't have friends because like we had um we had a lot of students that that had Down syndrome at my elementary school. Well, not a lot, but we had a few, and so deeply pained at like why they were treated differently, and I couldn't understand it. So my mom would tell me that like she could see early that I was very sensitive as well. Um, now, now I think of it as just being an empath, but um, mm. anyways, see God's, you know, hand calling me so early in my life, but I didn't begin to recognize it until my twenties. Uh, my early twenties is when I started to actually acknowledge, okay, I I feel that I need to be doing more. I have the capacity for more. I just need to figure out how to do that. So, yeah, I I don't think that my call story is going to stop. I believe that it's an ongoing process of revelation of God's fullness to you and in you. It's a persistent stretching and challenging for more and asking God uh, questions and God giving you more uh, to ponder and think about. So yeah, that's how I would describe it. Mm, beautiful. Beautiful. Um, 
I was having lunch with my old um, pastor of my youth for my Methodist church last week, and he, he was asking me this question. And I asked it right back to him after we got done talking because, you know, he he described it as a lot of wrestling with God, an internal uh, conversation, which is, I think, what a little bit of what you're describing too, just another way to name it. Yeah. And then I, I said, ah, for me, I, I would name it as like a holy disturbance. Yeah. You know, something that keeps you up at night, like you said, um, or visions or dreams. Um, for me, it's it's that thing that, literally keeps me up at night and I can't stop just wrestling and moving with God in my head and those conversations. And like you said, asking questions, I can't tell you how many times I've stayed awake trying to solve racism. <laughs> like, you know, just like, I just, I get, I just get, um, I don't know, overwhelmed with, with a question or a problem. I don't know what that is, but maybe it's, it's similar to, because you've realized, I mean, obviously your call is ongoing, but you've realized it in terms that you've been affirmed by your community and have, have taken the, the holy orders and are living as a a pastor, which I think is so cool. And I'm so, so proud of you. And it is. This is definitely your call. Um, this woman, I every time I've heard you preach, I, I think I've told you this before, I cry every single time. I you're, cry most times too. You do, you do, you do. Oh, but you're you just have this gift. I just um it's a beautiful thing to to witness. So keep keep doing that, girl. Um let's get into maybe uh more theological questions. Let's get a little deeper here. And that I think was a little a little deep, but let's get even more in there. Um a question um, I'm going to tell you the genesis of this question. It's what's saving your life right now. And I read this question in, you know, Barbara Brown Taylor. Yes. Okay. She's an Episcopal priest who's really well-known speaker and author, and she's written a lot of books. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, a lot of times for my, one of my spiritual practices is reading as I'm sure your yours is um, reading theology. And so I read like a chapter of one of her books a lot of times just for my morning kind of meditative state and uh, the altar, the altar in the world, I think is the book. And mm-hmm. someone asked her to preach one day at an Episcopal church and his question, you know, she's like, okay, what do you want me to preach on? He goes, what's saving your life right now? Mm. And it just like blew her mind and had, she had to really sit and think about it. Um, what was saving her life in that given moment? Um, so I would love to know right now what's what's saving your life. Wow. That's, thank you for letting me know the context of that. That's yeah. pretty profound, actually. Um, you know, what's saving my life right now is uh, this quote by Katie Cannon, which is... Um, do the work your soul must have. And so for me, that's been writing a lot. And, you know, I've shared with you some things that I've written here recently and it's been extremely cathartic and, um, to it though. And I think it's necessary for whatever reason, I don't know why. Um, but it's been, um, it's been freeing. It's been liberating. Uh, it's been challenging. It's been, 
God and breaking God's self in me. And like so many people have come back and told me, like I can be posting stuff on Facebook because right now I really don't have a medium for publishing yet. Um, I'm looking and like people will come to me and be like, I I hear God so clearly when you write. So just hearing them say that has been, has been, uh, it saves my life because I think like, I would never admit this like in public to anyone. So I'm going to say this and allow you to publish it on this podcast, Lord. <laughs> um, but I'm very insecure. I, I very, very much have a lot of fears about like, yes, even though I've answered my call, even though I have the, the now, there's so many ways in which I feel um, not necessarily unworthy, but unseen. And so in my writing, I, I have to, I have to, I have to be seen. I have to, I have to be authentic and vulnerable. And so that right now is that space where I'm rising to the occasion, even though there's all these fears that come along with it. So yeah, my writing is absolutely where um, I feel like my life is being saved time and time again, that I'm being reminded of God's faithfulness and God's call upon my life. And um mm. That's wonderful. And my next question, like you said, I think speaks directly to that was where do you encounter the divine the most? Yeah. And yeah, it's in my writing. Um, Also, I will say too, I have found community to be so important. Um, I am not someone who came out of divinity school with like all these, well, I mean, I I made some great relationships, but I don't feel like I have like a lot of mentorships, if that makes sense. Mm. So, rather than, but I think that's fine. Like, I think is that like you and I, as young people, we look to people older than us to like kind of guide us. But I think God is working, working in me, this, this notion of what does it mean to find people who help you make meaning, but Mm -hmm. that look towards the divine for your ultimate sense of guidance. And so, yeah, I've been experiencing God a lot, just being in community with folks who know how to hold space, right? So Lindsay Godwin is one of them. Um, She's amazing at that. Trudy Hawkins-Stringer is another, like, she's amazing at that. They're they're just there to ask you those questions to allow you to, like, get completely naked, you know, figuratively. And they're, they're like, okay, like, and so those those types of situations where you have that community, I definitely see God um, a lot. Absolutely. I, I feel the exact same. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about what it means to be a woman and especially a a black woman doing, doing God's work or doing living theology. What Mm -hmm. is, what's important to you about being a woman? Wow. Um, it's deeply important to me. Um, I think, for example, Sophia, Sophia, just thinking through like what that actually means. Um, Sophia being the, the, um, feminist woman, um, womanist, not feminist womanist. What am I saying? Sophia being wisdom portrayed in, in women's form, um, being that spirit that, uh, guides us is like, I remember being in, I don't know if, I don't know if it was New Testament. I don't remember which class it was in Div school. But when I learned that 
what Sophia was um, and who she was, it like opened my whole eye, all my eyes, all my, not just my two eyes, but my other eye. Like Mm -hmm. it just resonated with me because there's something about including women as the image of God that makes you feel fully who you're, who you are and makes you feel fully included in the sacraments. Like what you were saying uh, to, to see, to be able to make the connections between uh, Christ giving his body and shedding his blood um, and the, and the water pouring out from his body to even the, the act of childbirth of a, of a woman giving her body. And there's water that flows out when a baby is being born. Like there's so many ways to, to connect your womanhood uh, with God and God's being that you just are so assured and you're so at home and you feel so free. So I think like being a black woman doing what I'm doing, I'm always aware of how I'm presenting myself because I want people to understand that I'm also presenting God. Um, I'm also presenting um, in ways that have traditionally been overlooked, you know? And even now, like I can legitimately say, I don't know what I was doing or why, but I was driving to work and I was like, you know, I wrote my, one of my theology papers on God as black woman. Then like I was driving to work this past week and I was like, it it so makes sense to me to say God is queer. Like so makes sense to me to say God is queer. Like if God I mean, man, God is all genders. God is all all types of love. God mm-hmm. is is encompassing of all. So like God is transgender. God is woman. God is, you know, it was just like a beautiful moment in the car. And I just feel like those are the ways in the spaces in which God needs us, like you and I as human beings to show up into these spaces and present God in that manner mm-hmm. uh, proudly and boldly and proclaim it so that other people's lives can be saved, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I was talking a little bit in my episode about how, you know, if we just call God one thing, Mm -hmm. uh, just how much damage that causes people, especially like we've experienced how, how impoverished we've been spiritually Mm -hmm. by not having a name to call God that wasn't ours. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and we all need God to be ours in a sense, right? Like we need a special name for God. You know, the Jewish folk had, you know, had Yahweh. I am who I am. Mm-hmm. And it was this mysterious thing. And I, I love that, that, that tradition uh, for mm-hmm. God being I am who I am. And being that, you know, Jewish folk don't even utter that word because it's so holy and mysterious. Um, mm-hmm. So there's that that there's that part which i think is is just as important but to call god one thing that is so genderized as a male figure as father mm-hmm. and i get all these arguments well you know jesus was male and that's you know <laughs> the image we, i'm like okay like we we still can't put god in a box right. I, I don't care what god chose to come down in the incarnation i think in the historical context, I think Christ as a woman would have been met, as Elizabeth Johnson always says, with the colossal shrug. You know, mm-hmm. like people probably wouldn't have paid attention to her. So I don't think Christ's maleness is any more uh, 
uh, absolute about the mm -hmm. holy than Christ's uh, ethnicity or Christ's religious affiliations, right? Right. So, I mean, to say Christ's maleness is significant, we, then also is his Jewishness and his Middle Eastern um, color. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that's a very good argument. I digress. Um, <laughs> that's real, though. Yeah, that's really real. So thank you for answering that that question. And I think that is exactly what I was going with. I the, the other way I wanted to phrase that question was what does Sophia mean to you? Yeah. And imaging God as female to you mean, and it, as you say, it's extremely important, uh, not only for your theology, but living into who God's called you to be. And how difficult would that be if you didn't have that? Right. You know right. what I mean? Absolutely. And then like, it, it's odd that like before I got to D divinity school, I never had really given the proper place and space to the, to the power of women in my life. Like, like I said earlier, um, my grandmother means so much to me and my mother for that, for that matter, like in my mother's womb, like that's that, that woman is, is faithful. So in the mm. same she was she was in, going to church in her mother's womb, and my grandmother was going to church in her in her mother's womb, and that's right. important. Yes, and so like just thinking about like the ways in which the divine has been woven into into my life through through amniotic fluids. Like mm. if, that, if that's not some womanist theology, I don't know what is. You that's know what I'm good. Saying? That's good. And then on top of that, like, have you ever seen the color purple, Sarah, or have you read the book? A long time ago. So, you know, Alice Walker, the beloved mother of um, yes. womanism, yes. you know, she works the, wrote The Color Purple. And one of the main characters in that is Sophia. And Sophia don't give no shits. Like, Sophia <laughs> be like, nah, like, this is not how it's going. I'm just going to do what I do and say what I say. Yeah. And um, that's going to be that on that. And, like, there's a, there's a portion of that feistiness that I think as a black woman, I had been socialized to either shy away from mm. or to to hide it, to dim it, because that's not ladylike, or you don't want people to see you as angry black woman, or a man is never gonna wanna marry you, like all of the things, right? That we were programmed to believe that like kept us from who we are, who we are truly meant to be. And so like Sophia has a lot of um, biblical, uh, theological, um, implications for me, but also just like in that movie, in that book, which is extremely important in terms of being a sacred text to who I am now. Yes. It, Sophia is like, yeah, something I live, live into as well. Yeah. I often say about this podcast, a sacred text for me, I'm glad you said that, um, has been Elizabeth Johnson's work, She Who Is. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's been a very big part of my uh, faith journey and theological journey, but definitely she's the one who introduced me to Sophia as the divine personification of female. So, but Alice Walker, yeah, I remember in how formative that text is for uh, womanist theology and learning all about it in class. Um, yeah. So I need to give it a good read because yeah. it's been, it's been too long. Yeah. Hope you all enjoyed part one of Chantel's interview. Uh, join us next week for round two with Chantel, where we, where we will explore her 
most pressing theological question. Until then, please rate and review us on iTunes and check out our new website, theosophiapodcast.com. Have a good day.